Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. Today we're going to talk about the covenant with Israel. The covenant with Israel. Please turn your Bibles uh, or use the online links uh, in the notes here to join us at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to take a look at the covenant that the Lord makes with Israel. And so the whole purpose of this series has been to give you a framework for understanding the Old Testament, the chief part of that framework being these covenants that God makes. And we see that the beginning of the story, all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, the problem is a broken covenant. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16, 17, God tells the man, you know, you may eat any of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the the tree that's in the midst of the garden, which we find out is known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells Adam, you shall not eat of that, for in a day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we saw that what God was doing with Adam as he created Adam, and therefore with all of us, with Adam as our representative uh, father in that sense, he was making a covenant. And that covenant, therefore, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, that covenant with God was broken, at least from mankind's point of view. And their forfeit was their position over creation, was most importantly their lives, that they they died. They ultimately did die. They died spiritually immediately upon eating of the apple. They lost their standing with God. They were ashamed of what they had done. They were now separated from him because of the sin they had committed against him. And then the curses that come along with it uh, forfeits, you know, man's well-being. And indeed, the whole earth groans with the curses that came upon us in Genesis chapter 3. And so to uh, have relationship with God, to bear his image in the world, have dominion over the world, those things were forfeited uh, by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then indeed, we all share in that as far as we all sin and testify to the truth that we are in a deserving position that we are in. Well, the expectation, of course, in that covenant was obedience. And that is continued as the the people get worse and worse after the fall. In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, we see uh, a, an increasing amount of sin in the world. And God brings judgment by way of a flood. Well, after the flood, he reiterates the terms of the covenant with Noah. This is how we know what was going on in Genesis 1 and 2 is a covenant because God says, I'm going to reaffirm this with you, Noah. And he gives the same command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But he adds something to it. He adds to it this idea of capital punishment, that if anyone should shed the blood of man, then his blood shall be shed by man. And so he begins to give some human governance in. Well, immediately the people take this human self-rule, uh, this, this little bit of leeway, and they decide to disobey God's orders to fill the earth and subdue it. They form a city and in the midst of that city they build a tower and they say we're going to make a name for ourselves we're going to build a tower that will reach the heavens you know we'll we'll show god who we are and god confused their languages so that they would have to separate you know they couldn't practically stay with each other because of now these language barriers between all these people groups so he effectively scattered them throughout the world to obey his command to be fruitful and multiply 
fill the earth. Then he took one of those nations, a man named Abram, and he made some promises to Abram. He said, I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to show you the land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And by you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I will give them this particular land that you're going to dwell in for now. And I'll bless you. And I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And so these are the promises that he gives to Abram, later known as Abraham. He reiterates his covenant with him, keeps his promise to give him descendants miraculously in his old age. And the covenant then becomes reiterated to his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And it is then to all the 12 sons of Jacob, known as the sons of Israel, because Jacob was renamed, renamed, renamed as Israel. So now the covenant is going to be formalized as he has brought the people out of their bondage in Egypt. If we go to Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we find something interesting there. God heard their groaning, that is the people that were in slavery in Egypt. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So in the midst of this difficulty they're having in the land of Egypt, he is going to bring them out because of his covenant with Abraham, because he's now going to remember that covenant, the promises that he made, and he brings the people out. And then, of course, the beginning of the book of Exodus is that exciting uh, account of him doing this quite miraculously, bringing them out. Then we come to Exodus chapter 19, and these this section of scripture uh, is interesting because he begins to reveal himself to the people uh, in visible, physical kind of ways. They actually hear him speak from the mountain. Moses and some of the elders, they meet with him on the mountain. And so uh, he begins to speak to the people and he tells them his laws. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And so Exodus chapters 19 through 24 make a section of scripture that is sometimes called the book of the covenant. And we're going to read from chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. And what we're going to see in those verses is we're going to see a very important uh, promise of, of God and indeed the demands of God. And we're going to learn about this covenant that he makes with Israel. So in these verses, here's what he says. He says, the Lord called to Moses out of the mountain. So Moses is up on a mountain meeting with the Lord alone now. And he says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Let's begin with a word of prayer. 
Father God, as we examine these verses, Lord, I pray that we would not just see them as a curiosity or as matters of simple fact. Lord, they are factual, but we pray that you would indeed show us their significance and what they mean to us today and what they mean to your people to this very day as far as our place in this world, our mission, our service to you. We pray, Lord, that you'll be glorified by us mentioning these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to take a look momentarily at some things that we have uh, by way of explaining how this is set up. The covenant introduction, as we will call it, looks like this. It has a very simple uh, arrangement to it. First of all, God gives the history of the relationship. It's me. I'm the one who brought you out. In verses 5 and 6, he gives the terms. If you'll obey me, then you'll be my treasured possession. And then verses 7 and 8, we see that uh, the people give agreement to this. And so it's very simple. He reviews the history. He proposes these terms. And then the people give their agreement to the terms. And it's a very common kind of setup for covenants in those days. And that if you make a contract, then the first thing you want to say is, well, here's who we are today. And this is how we're related. And then these are the terms going forward that we now want to formalize. And then they effectively sign the document and the people give their agreement here verbally. And so that's the basic structure of this. But what I want to spend most of our time on is to look then at these terms, because in the terms, we see the purposes of the Israelite covenant. And what we see in those purposes is basically this. Uh, God wants to make Israel a treasured possession. And by a treasured possession, he describes it further as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And we find that right in the midst of these verses that we're speaking of. What does he mean by a treasured possession? Well, uh, we take a look at this idea of being a treasured possession, and we find this term used literally a couple of times in scriptures. In First Chronicles 29.3, it speaks of David's treasury. And he says, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. In other words, Beyond just the national treasure, the things belonging to the nation Israel, their King David had his own treasure set aside. And this is what this term is speaking to. It's used also in Ecclesiastes 2.8 in the same way. Everywhere else, it's used metaphorically like it is in the passage in which we're taking a look at. And so this becomes a powerful explanation and a great revelation of what God means to say that they are a treasured possession. And he wants to be a treasured possession among all the peoples. In other words, they're going to be special over and above all the other nations of the world. Now, in the ancient Far East, there was another use of this kind of uh, phraseology of being a treasured possession where kings themselves were sometimes referred to as the gods treasured possession. In other words, they were special to the God and Implicit in that idea is the idea that they were a servant of that God and even a son. And I hope now some of the things that were said in the first few sermons of this series are coming back to you. The idea of sonship of God, the idea of the servanthood to God. These are all rolled up in this idea of being a treasured possession. 
marked out by God as a personal treasure implies both service and privilege as a son. Interestingly, this idea of being a special position is reiterated regarding the church in the New Testament. And as Paul tells Titus about Christ, he says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. In other words, the church is a special possession of Jesus Christ. And again, this should draw our idea back to where mankind was special over creation compared to all the rest of creation. So what does he mean then by a kingdom of priests that he has on here, a kingdom of priests? Well, I want to note that these are not three separate things, treasured possession, uh, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. They are a treasured possession consisting of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Likewise, kingdom of priests, holy nation is, is two terms that go together. They're inseparable. The role of Israel cannot be understood through either one. The role of a priest, of course, is a go-between, a mediator, a mediator between God and people. Now we take this in two senses. In one sense, they are all, these people of Israel are going to every one of them be priests of God to the world, every single one of them in a way. And as a chosen people of God collectively, they're going to have this appointed position of being the priest nation to all the other nations. And they are kingly priests in that they represent the king himself and are a kingdom unto him. Now, what does a priest do? Well, he has special access to the presence of God. This is going to be illustrated in what you see in this passage. Read chapters 19 and 20 again. And what you're going to see is you're going to see concentric circles around God. God at the middle. And then the one who seems to be able to come the closest than anyone is Moses himself. And then close along with Moses sometimes is Joshua and Aaron. After that, the rest of the priests kind of get close to God, but not as close as the others. And then the furthest out are the common people who never come up on the mountain. They all stay down. They see the cloud. They hear the rumbling. They hear the voice of God from the mountain, but they are not to approach because of this privileged access. Do you see how there's these concentric circles of a smaller and smaller group that has this privilege of access to God? And God is saying, my inner circle in the world is going to be you, Israel. And you're going to form my inner circle and then you're going to relate to them on my behalf. This is what a priest would do, the go-between, the mediator. So the priest does two things. He brings information from God to the people, but he also brings sacrifices and worship from the people to God and presents them to God. And this is clearly what we see laid out in Israel's uh, laws here concerning the priesthood and the offerings and the worship at the tabernacle and all those things. Uh, They're actually, it's hard to read through. It seems incredibly boring, but when you understand what they're representing, then you begin to see the concentric circles. You begin to see the seriousness and the privilege of being drawn close to God. 
So essentially what God is saying here by calling them a kingdom of priests is saying, you have the privilege of being the closest to me out of all the nations. And as such, if the world wants to know about me, they're going to come through you. You're going to teach them about me. And although it's not explicitly said here, it's through Israel's sacrificial system that Jesus Christ comes. He performs the ultimate priestly duty. Read about it in the book of Hebrews. The ultimate priestly duty of the nation Israel is to bring forth Jesus Christ, the final high priest who sacrifices himself through that system for the sins of the world. So some people see the crucifixion of Jesus and say, well, this was their Messiah. This was their chosen one. They rejected him and crucified him. What an incredible failure. Not in God's economy. See, that's actually God's plan from the very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he says, I'm going to bring forth a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And this was his plan, that this particular kingdom of priests would bring forth and offer Christ willingly or not. Well, not only are they a kingdom of priests, they are a holy nation. And so here comes the idea of a nation. And the idea of a nation pulls in the concept of kingdom. We've been saying that the idea of covenant is the idea of kingdom wrapped up in it, is the idea that God is establishing a kingdom with himself as the king, and he's assembling together his loyal subjects. So when we bring in the concept of nation, we're saying, okay, not only is this just a people identified by some commonality, but they're going to assemble together in an orderly economic, political, and social structure through which the king is going to rule. Now here we see Genesis 12:2 coming to pass when God told Abram way back there in Genesis 12:2 hundreds of years earlier he told uh, Abram I will make you a great nation. Well here it is and it's not just a great nation it's a holy nation. So it's under the direct rule of God to model for the world how it's supposed to look to be directly related to God as a people. So the word holy here, as it describes nation, we don't want to think of it as being simply separate. We want to be careful to say it means consecrated to. That means set apart unto God. It can also be thought of as devoted to. So when they're called a holy people, they were to be dedicated, devoted to the purposes of of God. That means God takes number one priority in everything that they do. And you can see that through the laws that they have, through the festivals that they keep, through the keeping of the Sabbath and everything like that. They were supposed to display to the world this holiness that they were consecrated, devoted to the purposes of God. And God was to be their king. And so this is why God expresses such anger in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, when the people of Israel demand a king and you know Samuel's really upset by it God's really upset by it and God summarizes it this way to Samuel says they haven't rejected you they've rejected me as being king over them by asking for a king they were supposed to be a holy nation under God with God as their king a holy nation dedicated to God for fellowship with him and devoted to his service 
in the world. Now, this see how this goes hand in hand with the idea of being a kingdom of priests, because that means that they are completely devoted to representing him to the world in their teaching and in their character and bringing the world to God. Look how God brings this back to the creation covenant. Remember, to be in his image and likeness means to rule over the earth and subdue it. And with respect to God, it meant obedience. With respect to the world, ruling and representing. But now these things are being applied specifically to these people, Israel, who are going to live in a particular place that God has chosen. Interestingly, in the crossroads of the world at the time, the land of Canaan, what we know as Palestine or Israel. Now we know that Israel ultimately fails in their covenant. I hope that's not a spoiler for you as you're reading through the Old Testament, but they ultimately fail in their covenant in many ways. But God's plan does not fail. He brings forth Jesus Christ from among them to fulfill all of the law. And then Jesus Christ brings a new and better covenant. So then we come to the idea of the new covenant. In the new covenant, as the great and final high priest, Jesus Christ has presented himself as the final sacrifice. And Jesus has fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness that he now makes available to us. Now, the New Covenant, you can read in the book of Hebrews how far superior the New Covenant is than the Old, but a major way the New Covenant is superior is this. Each and every believer in the New Covenant is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And when we are gathered together, there's a special blessing on it. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, when two or more, two or three of you are gathered together, look, there I am in the midst of you. So not only is the Holy Spirit personally indwelling each believer, but as believers gather together, then the Holy Spirit is there in a special way. This is why church is so fundamental and important, to gather together with other believers, because the Holy Spirit does something special when that happens. And that's when we're all molded to the image of Christ, when we sharpen each other, when we build each other up, when we serve one another with our various gifts and take care of one another's needs in community. This is the indwelling of the Spirit of God, especially among His people, His holy temple. And this is important because in the new covenant, now I want to say there's many discontinuities and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and indeed he did. So the whole sacrificial system is fulfilled by Jesus. We no longer have need of it. All the feasts of Israel are fulfilled by Jesus. We no longer have need of those. Now, can we observe the feast? Oh, absolutely. I think at that time of year, as the feasts come around, the seven different feasts that Israel observed, actually eight, if you figure in the book of Esther and the Feast of Purim, they can be very encouraging and very instructive, but we are not required as a law to do it like Israel was because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. And as far as the civil ideas of law, we are no longer a civil nation. We are a true kingdom of God. 
and we do not have to administer civil laws. There are governing authorities on earth for that. The only governance that he gave into his church is the order of the church with the elders and the serving deacons and the, the, the members, the, the believers gathered together in the church. The only true uh, policing that the church is going to do is a matter of church discipline, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 18, and then the excommunication that might result from such a thing. Paul describes that in his first Corinthian letter around about chapters 5 through 7. And so, you know, these are important concepts that the, the laws, by and large, what follows here in the Old Testament, by and large, apply to Israel. Now, does that mean we shouldn't keep them? Well, take a look at the last sermon that we did in this series, and it is about the law and how they still apply to the believer in Jesus Christ, but how they apply differently, not as civil rules for us to apply and follow, but as holy standards for us to attain through the power of the Spirit. So we are still called then to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here's why I really want to turn to kind of a time of invitation. I want to spend more time at the end of this applying this than I normally do. And we're going to do it using scripture, of course. Uh, you might turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting about verse 9. And I'm going to take you there in just a moment. I'm going to make it a little bit bigger for us so we can take a look at it uh, together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at verse 9 first. And look what the Lord says here. He says, you are a chosen race. Now, this is Peter speaking to the church, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is saying, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So he takes the same terminology from Exodus chapter 19 that was applied to Israel under the old covenant, and then he takes that and applies it to us under the new covenant. And he's going to point out a couple reasons why it's superior here. But look what he says, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's no doubt that he is pointing back to this Exodus chapter 19 passage that we have already looked at. And here I want to point out something that there is no call to salvation in Jesus Christ without a call to service. There is no call to salvation in Jesus Christ without a call to service. Because look how he says this here. A people for his own possession that you may claim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. In other words, we're called for a purpose, for a reason. We're called together as this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a special treasured possession of God for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. He called us what? He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Lord Jesus Christ calls you out of darkness. Just like he called the Israelites out of bondage 
in Egypt out of slavery where they had no freedom to determine their own way. They had difficult labor. They had a persecution by the Egyptian authorities who were attempting to wipe out the a generation of the, Egypt, or of the Israelites in order to call their population. This is when God intervened, by the way, when they began to do that. And so he calls you out of this darkness and you are to partake then in the same promises as Abraham. You've become the people of God. God remembers those promises. Just as he brought those people out of Egypt, he will bring you out of bondage to sin, out of treadmill religion of law, into an inheritance of righteousness from Jesus Christ, the chosen cornerstone. Look here how Peter describes what God is doing here. He gives an illustration starting back here in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, as you come to him, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious? Yes. But so are you, believer. You're a living stone. In verse 5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. And so we are chosen, precious, in the sight of God, the treasured possession. And look what he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's where he really brings in the image here. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, think about what is Zion? Zion is another name for the hill upon which Jerusalem stands. And there's a very special building there on that hill. There used to be. It was a temple. And the temple, the buildings, the stone buildings that they did in those days, they had cornerstones. The cornerstone was usually, usually very, very large. And just as it was, it was the bottom corner of one of the front, usually of the front part of the building. And it was that stone that once that was set into place and they would take care to find a perfect stone and cut it perfectly and establish that as a corner because all the other stones would have to line up with it. The cornerstone would determine where that building's going to be and would determine the angles at which that building's walls would undertake and how the entire thing would come together. And what Peter is saying is he is quoting an Old Testament scripture here that is speaking of Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus is that cornerstone. He's laid there and he's building a temple and he's building it out of you. And you're these living stones that you're going to be built together to line up with him. Each one of you precious. He, the most precious, but you also precious, built together into what? A temple. Well, what was the temple to the people of God? The temple to the people of God was where God is. That's where we they went to meet with him. That's where his visible presence was at times at the dedication of the temple. And that's where they offered sacrifice. And that indeed is you, his precious and chosen church. 
you're being built together. He is this great cornerstone. And look what it says. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, how do you become a part of this great building program of God? You become part of it by believing. Look there in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the builders, he's speaking of the uh, elites, the, you know, the, the leaders of the nation Israel at the time that Jesus came, they're the builders here and they rejected Jesus. But God, even though Jesus was rejected by the builders, God's planted him as the cornerstone. That's move those guys aside. It's time to get a new architect, God himself. He's going to put the stone in place himself. He's going to fire all those guys and he's going to start building a building himself and he's going to build them out of living stones. But those that reject him, look what it says. He becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And it says they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. But then we get to the verse we started with, but you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Don't stumble on Jesus Christ. Do not reject him. He is this cornerstone. He is the only way to be saved. The book of Acts says there's no other name under heaven by which to be saved. He is the one that fulfilled all of these things that God painstakingly did and wrestled through the nation Israel and through their difficulties and everything else and having to deal with them. He wrestled his plan through them and brought it to you. If we should neglect Jesus Christ, where else will we go? All of human history has bent to this plan of God to bring him forth. He moved empires to bring forth Jesus at the right time and place to fulfill all that he had him to do. And so there would be no way to be saved. This is the plan of God. Jesus Christ is this cornerstone and he is the fulfillment and purpose of all the covenants of God, old and new. And so my encouragement to you is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by believing, it's how we're not put to shame. It is by faith that the membership in this holy nation, this royal priesthood, takes place. It is those who believe that this great honor is for. So trust in Jesus Christ this day for salvation. And to do that, repent of your sins. Turn from your way of doing things and thinking about things. And look at the Holy Scriptures and see, God expects and models for me to live in such a way that I can't possibly do on my own. I'm going to have to have His power to do it. He's going to have to do it for me. And indeed, Jesus Christ did do it for you. Trust in Him for your salvation. To take the penalty of your sins and to provide for you eternal life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day. And Lord, firstly, as your people, I pray that we would understand what it means to be holy unto you, to be this, this holy nation, to be this royal priesthood.
Lord, I pray that you would just give us understanding of these things today. Impress upon us the urgency to represent you to the world for those That is the reason that you've called us together to proclaim your excellencies. Give us the power of your spirit to do the great commission, to make disciples of all nations, to show them the excellencies of you and what you have done to save a people for yourself. Help us this day to understand these great truths. And Lord, for those that are listening that are not part of this holy nation, this kingdom of priests. Lord, I pray this day that you would work in their hearts to show them their need for Jesus Christ, that you would help them to repent of their sins and turn, turn toward Jesus Christ in faith and so be saved. I pray, Lord, you would do this wondrous work in them and lead them in prayer and lead them to your great throne where they will worship you in spirit and in truth. We worship you this day because of your wondrous words that you've given us and the message that they have brought. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I encourage you to uh, consult us if you have any kinds of questions at all. Uh, We are here to help you. We are here to uh, answer your questions. You can contact us at whitesrun.org. And there you'll be able to uh, email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We will answer your questions uh, personally. We will receive those emails. We will get back to you very quickly to let you know uh, an answer, uh, hopefully, and to help you along. Uh, We're not interested in, in stealing sheep from other churches. If you're already happy in the church family where you are, God bless you. May you serve there and serve well. I invite you to explore all the resources we have, all the sermons and videos we have, and the links and, and articles that we have that can be helpful to you in your growth. So until next time, uh, may God bless you.